0: Thank you, Rosemary, and good uh, g'day, Uni Church. My name's Nick. Uh, if you're visiting us tonight, it's really great that you're here. I think we're having dinner after the service. You might like to stick around and we can uh, get to know each other then. Um, and I promise that is a tricky passage, but we are going to uh, figure it out together, so you might want to keep it open in front of you as we do that. Uh, a question for you to ponder. Is this church... Thankful. Are we a thankful church? What, what would you say uh, to that question? Uh, maybe tonight you're not from this church, you're in another church, feel free to kind of imagine it in your context, but the question is, are we, is this church, is your church, thankful? Thankful. Imagine we set up a little task force to come and help us evaluate that question. We pick a few of you. You're one of them. Uh, and so hypothetically, uh, Church Council gives you uh, all the resources we have in the church to figure out this problem. Uh, you can marshal anything you need. You can uh, investigate the staff. You can look at the congregants. We give you, like, special access to El Vanto if you can figure out how it works. Uh, obviously, the interns are off-limits, uh, but you can look into Beck and Lindsay and Sienna if you want. Uh, what would you discover? Are we thankful? Uh, We could look at our services, couldn't we? We could uh, look at how they run and and the words that we say. We could uh, read through the lyrics in our songs or we could uh, look at our prayers and and the things we pray for together. What would we learn about our thankfulness? Uh, but that stuff's, that stuff's just kind of uh, structural. We could, we could look at our conversations, couldn't we? Maybe you could uh, sneak up behind people and listen in. You could do some lip reading. What what would you see? What would you hear about thankfulness? Maybe you could look into your own heart while you're there. Your own prayer life. Searching for thankfulness. What would you find? Between us And God, between our blessing, uh, his blessing and our blessedness, what could we say about thankfulness here in this church or wherever you come from? Uh, Keep that tab open. We're going to come back to it right at the end. Uh, But for now, we're going to dig into the story. Uh, This is part four, the final instalment in our series in Esther. And today, uh, we're going to see three movements and they all start with an R. We've got act one, The Reversal, Act 2, The Rescue, Act 3, The Remembrance. The Reversal, The Rescue, The Remembrance. Firstly, Act 1, The Reversal, and we're looking at chapters 8, verses 1 to 17. Uh, In the story so far, episode 1, a few weeks ago, we saw uh, strange circumstances where the Jew Esther became queen of Persia. Uh, That brought us to episode two where where Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, uh, became prime minister and then he convinced the king to let him uh, concoct a decree so that he could kill the Jews and obviously that uh, was as bad as it sounds. And so that brought us to episode three, if you were here last week, uh, where the big event was that through the sovereignty of God and Esther being just in the right place at just the right time and the stunning timing of a random eunuch... Haman was done away with, and he was impaled on a pole. Uh, that's the story so far, and as we come to chapter 8, the thing that is still hanging over the story is the fact that Haman's decree for death still stands. Now, for some, some reason, in, in Persian law, uh, legislation was nearly impossible to undo, and therefore a day was still expected when God's people would be killed. And as readers, that feels like a lot, that that we've kind of been on this journey, we've we've had the conflict and the rising tension and this masterful resolution where Haman is brought low, we've come down the mountain, and now it feels like we have to climb back up again and relive it all. So what's going on? Four things uh, to notice. Uh, Firstly, notice how easily everything happens from here. Uh, Esther goes to the king in verse 8 and to our surprise uh, it's like her request is just the lowest hanging fruit possible. Verse 8, the king tells her and Mordecai, just write your own decree. Verse 9 it goes out to all the provinces in the empire. Verse 12 a day is appointed. Verse 17, they're having a party. In a sense there's no tension at all. It just happens so easily. That's the first thing. Uh, Secondly then notice that everything is almost an exact reversal of what Haman himself had done. I think we should have a slide. There we go. Uh, So back in chapter 3, Haman was given the king's signet ring, uh, made prime minister, and then here in chapter 8, Mordecai the Jew gets the same job. Chapter 3, Haman writes a decree for the death of the Jews that can never be revoked, and then Uh, In chapter 8, verse 8, Esther and Mordecai write a decree for their defence that can never be revoked. In chapter 8, the Jews are allowed to kill, annihilate and destroy the enemies and that's exactly what Haman had said about them. The Jews use couriers, Haman did that as well, fast horses. Uh, They display the law publicly, Haman did that as well. Uh, We see the reversal of Mordecai's clothes. He began in sackcloth and ashes, but he ends up in royal robes. And then to cap it off, chapter 3, the city of Susa, when they heard Haman's decree, they were bewildered, going nuts. And then in chapter 8, the city rejoices. It used to be dangerous to be a Jew. And in chapter uh, 8, many people convert and become Jews. It's a complete reversal. As the passage said, the tables have been turned. Uh, So at first, it happens easily. Second, uh, everything is reversed. Third thing, notice that the reversal begins with a change in power. A few few weeks ago, when when Haman became the king's number two, uh, that's when he had his idea to kill the Jews. And so likewise, it's when Mordecai gets the same job that he and Esther are able to save God's people. And that's what this section is about. That when the highest power in the land switches to the people of God, everything else follows. Every sour moment is reversed. Every uh, judgment deserved by the enemies comes. Everything is made right. Right. But fourthly, final, final little thing, notice there's a delay. In verse 9, it's the third month that the decree is written. And in verse 12, the day for rescue is set not in the third month, but the 12th. For nine long, slow months, between the decree and the day of rescue, there's a delay. And that is what it's like for us as Christians. That the power in the universe has switched to the people of God. Christ is resurrected. He reigns, waiting for his enemies to be made, a footstool for his feet. The, war, the war's over. There is, there's no power that has not been brought to its knees under him, the resurrected king. And yet there's a delay. We are still waiting for the final rescue. It begs the question, why? What are we waiting for? I think uh, part of the, the answer that Esther is showing us is that we are waiting so that people can switch sides. We're not waiting here on earth because God wants us to enjoy the scenery. He's not uh, waiting for us to finish our degrees or find a spouse or pay down the deposits. We are waiting here in this room right now, waiting in this world, for people to see us celebrating the reversal of power in the universe and to say... I want some of that. To to, to see that their world is lost without Jesus, to see us following him and to say, I want to join you guys. Uh, I want to put uh, cards out open on the table uh, because if you're here tonight and you're not yet on the side of the king and your allegiance is yet to be changed... Uh, cards open on the table, you have got to know that there is a day where it will be too late. And these days, this moment, the God of the universe gives it to you for you to make that switch. That's a massive thing to decide. Uh, And I would love uh, to know what you think about that. What you would like to think about the day that is coming according to God. Uh, Come find me afterwards at dinner. I would love to hear your thoughts about that. Uh, But that's Act 1, the reversal. Act 2, the rescue, uh, chapter 9, 1 to 19. Uh, Have a look at chapter 9, verse 1. On the third day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities, in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. Uh, that's the basic plot, right? That the day of the Jews arrives, they assemble. The world is frozen in fear, and they go on to triumph over their enemies. But as basic as it is, I wonder if, like me, fe- uh, you like me, uh, find that it feels wrong. We read in uh, verse thirteen where Esther, having told the king, how many enemies they had already slain, she asks for a second day to go and finish the job. In, in verse 16, we zoom out uh, from the city to the rest of the empire, which was kind of most of the world at the time, and, and even then we're shocked that they could take down 75,000. And then to top it off, they Celebrate but there's this, there's this feasting and this joy and this, this jubilation about what has happened. And what are we to do with that? That's, that's a really hard question. Believe me, I had to, had to think about it all week. Uh, so as Bible-believing Christians, I want us to uh, put our heads together and think about what this passage is saying about that. The first thing to recognise here is that, is that uh, this is God's judgement... Not human revenge alone. Uh, The clues in verse thirteen, verse fifteen, sorry. Have a look at what happens to the plunder. Uh, Nine fifteen. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. See, to take the proceeds from the battle would be to benefit from the attack. You kind of see a nation or a a people group with nice things and things that you want, and so you destroy them and take all their stuff. But that's not what happens. And the reason is that the Jews aren't fighting for their own revenge or material gain, but ultimately for God's. This is a picture of God executing justice and they are serving him. It's about his judgment, not theirs. Secondly, though, we have to see it's through his judgment that he saves. Uh, in a sense, you know, that's, that's kind of obvious that, that Israel's enemies want to kill them and therefore to save them from their enemies, their enemies need to be st- destroyed. But we also have to see that it's the only way. For, for God to give peace, he has to destroy the aggressor. For him to bring life, he has to destroy those who mean death. He waits nine months. He he gives them time to to change allegiance, but eventually there comes a point where there's only room for one side. It's a kind of zero-sum game. The victim and the perpetrator, they can't coexist. One of them has to go. Salvation requires judgment. That kind of raises the question whether uh, Christians should be involved in a holy war today. Uh, The short answer is definitely no. But uh, if you want to talk about that more after the service or at Q&A, you can. But what we have instead here is a picture of the final judgment, a picture of God who is in the business of remaking our entire world, a future place of, of paradise eternal life, glory that does not end. And the fact of the matter is that the things that are incompatible with that world cannot be allowed to be there. Sin, evil, darkness, Satan, unrepentant people, those things are incompatible with goodness. They're like mud near a bride's dress. They can't be there. And therefore God must judge. He must decidedly judge once and for all. And I think we all actually want that. We, we see the mass shooting in the United States, the injustice of lives cut short. The brutal selfishness of someone who did not care. And we want something done about that. We, we want a world where that won't happen. Where the human heart can't stoop to such low levels of depravity. But to make that world, fundamentally, there can't be any depravity. There there can't be anyone who stands against God. There there can't be any hint of sin. And that's why Christ died. But at the cross, as the one who brandishes the ultimate sword of judgment, he might first let it be plunged into him that doing so he could say, repent, receive my forgiveness, come into my father's kingdom. Come before it is too late. I think we have to put ourselves into the, the shoes of Esther's people. There they were, nine months, worrying and waiting. And you can picture them, right? Suddenly one night, the doors open, the men go out, they do what needs to be done. And suddenly, as the sun rises, our mothers have been able to sleep. Kids go out to play. Families smell the roses. They eat good food with their neighbors. They walk down the street. The life they had longed for had finally come. That's why there's so much joy And one day in the fullness of time, that will be us. Because through judgment and God dealing with the things that are wrong in our world, he will make all things right. And that brings us to our final act, Act 3, our remembrance. Act 1, the reversal. Act 2, the rescue. Act 3, the remembrance. Verses 9, 20 to 10. homeward stretch Uh, in the last section of the book the the story has has finished and and now uh, the author just kind of wants to point out what we need to do with it and the answer is celebrate you see it there Uh, Mordecai and Esther they they get to work they uh, draft a series of letters outlining what happened and how every year the Jews ought to come together and remember and celebrate the marvellous things that had happened and, and you see it there, it's kind of, it's kind of painted like a big party. Uh, there's, there's joy and there's feasting. There's this, this part we didn't read where you get to give and receive presents. It's like a kind of Jewish Christmas, so to speak. It does make you wonder what they'd put on top of the tree, maybe a kind of impaled Haman or something. Just to, I don't know, it's a bit dark, but it's their event, not ours. But uh, the question is, what is all this celebration for? What purpose is it serving? Uh, This is the moment where you get to participate in this sermon. Uh, Hands up, nice and high, if you've ever seen a Star Wars film. Hands up. Okay, pretty much everyone. That's great. Okay, hands up again if the first Star Wars film you ever saw was made in the 70s or the 80s. Okay, what's that? Maybe a quarter. Hands up if the first Star Wars film you ever saw was made in the 90s or the 2000s. Okay, a little bit less. A bunch of you haven't figured out which one it was, haven't you? You're kind of confused. you More people put their hands up in total than did this second. Uh, But if you've never seen a Star Wars film, that's okay. The thing you need to know is that the films made in the 90s and the early 2000s were prequels to the films that came earlier. So uh, the order they made the films was episode 4, 5, 6. Then they went back and made episode 1, 2, and 3. And then something else happened with the franchise that we won't talk about. Uh, But does that make sense? That They didn't make them in order, did they? Okay. Now, what does that have to do with Esther? Well, when we read Esther, we're, we're not Jewish, we're not ancient, and so we read the story uh, from the very beginning all the way through. That's kind of how we read the Bible. We get to Leviticus in March. We normally pause there for a little while, but we normally start at episode one and we go through to episode six. But when Esther was first written, the people who read it were people who were already living and watching the final episodes. You've got to imagine that in history they would have been living either under uh, the Persian Empire or the Greeks or the, or the Romans and they would have been sitting there again under the oppression of another foreign ruler wondering in this final episode that they're living is there any hope? Is, is there anything out there that says that this could be different? And then you've got to imagine that the, the page on the calendar turns over. And it's the 14th and the 15th of the month of Adar. And a feast begins. And a rabbi gets up and he tells this story. You watch as the little kids get a thrill at what happens to Haman. You watch as the parents shed a joyful tear. As they realise deep in their past was a story that changed Everything. A story that explained it all. One of the things that is common uh, to most cultures and societies nearly everywhere in the world is that we put a premium on preserving memories. And the main way we still do that today is by telling stories. Uh, You know, at at Christmas time we'll go around the table and we'll tell stories from our family, from great Uncle Dick and Aunt Mary Jane and the things that they did. Uh, Our country tells stories. We tell Anzac stories and kind of mythical legends to kind of uh, shape who we are. Uh, Our indigenous neighbours, they tell stories, ancient stories that have been passed on from generation to generation. We preserve memories. That's what humanity does. But it struck me this week that, that one of the reasons that we are so careful about preserving memory isn't because we care about the past per se, but rather because we think the past has something to say about the future. And so we tell, we tell stories which bear significance uh, not just for the past but for who we are now, for life as it must be lived in the days ahead and in Esther that is what is happening the people of God were to celebrate the saving deliverance of God because by doing that it was a communal signal that God would rescue again that in the future there would be another day appointed a day when all things would be set right in full their celebration of the past points them to the future it's interesting that the celebration was called purim i don't know if you uh, picked that up as we were reading but uh, the word pur it's persian for the dice that haman uh, cast to decide the day to kill the jews and that's kind of a provocative title for the jewish celebration and yet it's also brilliant Because as they celebrate their rescue, remembering that even when it looked like the cards were stacked against them, even when the dice were, so to speak, loaded against them, actually all along, the only day set in stone was the day of the Lord. And therefore, they could know that even when all of reality screams that the world is falling apart for the people of God, they could look back and know God reigns. God rescues. And he's going to do it again. Therefore, they remember. So, what should we do with a passage like this as we think about ourselves. One of the obvious landing points that we could take is to think about the Lord's Supper. Uh, They, back then, celebrated their victory as they waited for the final day, and we, too, in obedience to the Lord Jesus, uh, we do that as well. You know, Jesus himself said, take this bread and this drink, forward slash uh, grape juice or ribena, and, and do this in remembrance of me. Together, as you wait for that day, do this regularly to remember what I have done and will still do. It's interesting, in Matthew, he says to his disciples, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it new with you again in my Father's kingdom. That's a good application, right? That, That we as a church should give priority to the regular celebration of the work of Jesus at the cross. I think that's why we switched to those little uh, cup things, we could peel them open uh, so that we could keep doing communion during COVID. Because by remembering the past, we look forward to the day ahead. Uh, But tonight, I actually want us to dig a little bit further into this idea. Because in the New Testament, the celebration and remembrance of the death of Jesus isn't just left to the weeks when we share the Lord's Supper. It's something that we should be doing all the time. Uh, As Paul says so often in his letters, I always continually never cease to give thanks for God's salvation for you. And so as we finish, uh, I want us to come back and think about thankfulness. I don't know what you made of our church or, or your church when we think about that topic I think on some levels we actually do pretty well. Uh, you know, we sing songs that by and large are full of gratitude to God and his grace. Our, our liturgy, the kind of the set prayers and the creeds and, and the things that we say out loud, uh, you know, that, that freaks out our Baptist friends, but actually that is the thing that, that keeps our church beating to the regular rhythm of thankfulness. I, I think we can kind of pat ourselves on the back for that or thank God, you know, that those things are good. But on the other hand, I'm not sure how good we are at translating that into our fellowship among each other. Maybe uh, you're the exception to the rule, but for me, it is a struggle to thank God in the presence of each other. Uh, It it could be that it's kind of embarrassing because we're not really an emotional church, or it could be that you know, as Australians, our spiritual life is private, and we don't want to do that in front of others, I don't know, we can kind of prosecute that case later, but I don't think that thankfulness in our conversations and our life together is our strength. And the thing we lose when we don't thank God in the presence of one another is that we don't get an opportunity to remember how the past assures us of the future. Thankfulness and remembrance of what God has done are the things that tether us to the work that God still has to do. Like like a beautiful sunset, thankfulness lifts our gaze from the gloom of this world, casts us back to the glories of Jesus at the cross and then sets our sight forward when his glory will come down to us. sets our sights on the rescue. The day of judgment and salvation. The restoration of all that is right. See, thankfulness is about what we value. And a church that is thankful to God would be a church that values its mission. It would be a church that doesn't value the things of the world. It would be a church that lives hopefully and serves faithfully because it sees its value. Thankfulness for God's work is that powerful. And so my encouragement for you tonight in your private devotion and in your presence amongst us here at this church is for you to promote that kind of thankfulness for us to put a premium on sharing in the celebration of what God has done and will do and will come to do soon. And in fact, we're going to do that uh, right now. Uh, The Musos are going to come up in a minute, but before they do, I'm going to give you a minute uh, to sit and reflect and to give thanks to God uh, for all that he has done in giving you salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ.